Uh, Well, as already said, we see in Genesis chapter 1 this perfect kingdom. And and we see throughout Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And it was a very good garden that God placed the man and the woman. The end of chapter 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's this perfect relationship with husband and wife, a perfect relationship with God. It is glorious. And then we hit chapter 3. So this message is going to be kind of a two-part message. This is the idea of the kingdom collapsed, the kingdom of God's collapsed, and the kingdom of God called, the kingdom called. Let's kind of dive in here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Uh, what you see here is you see the, the, this, this transition from Satan, who is the serpent here, from doubting God's word, moving them to deny God's word. So a lot of sin in your own life and a lot of sin that we see in, in the scriptures begins with doubting God's word. Did God really say? If you think back even a few moments ago to our members meeting, there's there going to be thoughts that arise and we'll say, did God actually say? Well, when that arises in us, we want to go right to the word of God and what did God actually say? And the serpent's trying to make Eve here and Adam, you'll see in verse seven, he's right there with him, with her, um, verse six rather, is he's trying to doubt. So did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman rightly affirms the truth. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Let neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now we don't know if that is just uh, Eve adding extra things or with, in terms of not being able to even touch the tree, or if that's Adam going gracious to his wife, hey, sweetie, don't even touch the tree. Don't even get near the tree, baby, right? We don't want to go that direction. We don't know. But either way, she responded with the truth. Praise God for Eve's initial uh, confronting of false teaching with the truth. But then it goes on. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Isn't that interesting how quick that turns? When we think about how Satan tempts us, it's the same today. He makes us doubt God's word, and then he denies it. Uh, And if we're not careful, we we would take that jump very quickly like Eve did. The serpent continues, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So his root in trying to attack Eve is trying to make her doubt God's goodness. This is how God tempts us in sin today, right? He tells us to doubt God. Does God actually say that? Well, no, that, that's actually not true. Because if you follow this, God, God, would want you to, God would want you to have that. If he's a good God, well, of course he would give you the good things that you, that you want. But listen, beloved, God knows best. And when we do things outside of his word, it is for our ill and for our own destruction. When we follow the ways of our flesh, what we do is we follow the way of the evil one. And we end up destroying ourselves. So if you're walking in sin, you're actually hating yourself because you're not doing what is best, and that is honoring the Lord. So uh, Satan tempts Eve, 
And Eve thinks and processes this. And we see in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Uh, Where you see there, you see the first sin. Uh, The first sin that will lead to death. Doubt, to denial, to death. That same is the true for any one of us. If we doubt God's word, moving to deny God's word, that will ultimately lead to our own death. We pray you would be aware of that. But what you see here is you don't just see the, that sin here, you see how sin spread. Uh, we, we first see how, how sin spread to the, to the breaking of relationships. So we see the break of relationships. We see this with the Lord. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, how cool is that? Can we stop for a second? God is walking in the garden with man and with woman. And they have this beautiful relationship, their creator, the one who made them, the one who blessed them with every tree in the garden but one, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I cannot tell you how many times I heard, even today, how, how great the weather has been, right? It's been uh, 80 degrees, but it hasn't been humid and hot. It's been glorious. The false fall has come upon us in South Carolina but that doesn't how it ends. There's a comma there, not a period. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We see this right after they sinned. What do they do? Is they made loincloths for themselves. They were ashamed. They felt that shame. They felt the shame of sin and they, and they hid themselves. And now you see this break in relationship with God. Instead of going to God and welcoming and greeting him, what do they do? They hide themselves from the Lord. This is what happens when sin enters into our life. We don't go to God in prayer. We don't go to the, to the body of believers to hear God's word. We hide from it. Relationship is broken. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? How kind is God? He calls out to them. Does God know where he's at? Yes. <laughs> he's God. He knows all things. But what does he do? He calls out to him so that this man has an a chance to repent, to say, I sinned, to come back to him. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. If you are walking in obedience, you're not afraid of God. So when when God comes back, you're not going to, to shrink in shame. You're going to run to him. You can't wait to see him. But this man was afraid. So he hid himself because he realized he was naked and he was exposed before the Lord. He said, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God in his kindness asked a question, giving the man an opportunity to repent. What do we see? He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. God, it's not my fault. It's this woman's fault, and you gave me this woman, so God, it's your fault that I ate the, the tree. Can I just make an aside here? Uh, when I do marriage counseling, um, 
and when, when marriages are in, in, in trouble, when I see a couple blaming their spouse and not themselves for the problems in their marriage, things usually don't get better. So usually early on, people come to my office and they kind of complain about each other, about something that's not going well in their marriage. That's, that's common. And I tell them, I said, okay, as soon as you stop blaming your spouse and start turning it onto yourself, you're not going to find happiness and joy in your marriage. So if you have a conflict in your marriage now, I pray that you would not blame your spouse, but you would look towards yourself and say, okay, these are the things I can change uh, before the Lord. Because the, the fruit of the first man, Adam, the, the, the one who was of the flesh, he blames God, he blames his wife. He doesn't blame himself. We don't want to walk in like the first Adam. We want to walk like the second Adam, who was willing to lay his life down to say, I'll take the blame for somebody else's sin. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and ate. The woman is no better. She blames the, the serpent. It's his fault. Break in relationships with God. But we also see this break in relationship with each other. Look at verses 16 and 19. In verse 16, it says, To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So now there's going to be conflict in the home. Uh, the husband and wife are not going to have a perfect relationship. There's going to be uh, a tension there. That's what it speaks to. Uh, we can go on even in, in verse 17. Sorry, verse 19. To the man, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Uh, now work's going to be hard, and there's going to be conflict in how man interacts with not only his wife, but with the world. Um, thorns, verses uh, 17, because you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread and return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see a broken relationship with God because of sin, a broken relationship horizontally with man and woman, and now we see we have a broken relationship with creation itself. And that's going to be traced from Genesis all the way to Revelation when the Lord comes back and restores his people. We walk fully in the light of his glorious face. So what happens? What happens because of man and woman's sin? Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest you reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that he turned every way to guard to the way to the tree of life. So God's place, the Garden of Eden, now does not have God's people, Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve are banished. They are exiled. They are excommunicated from the communion they had with the Lord. They are banished. And what you see here is, very quickly, from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 11, a, a progressive of sin. In, in chapter 4, we, we see this, this relationship between, uh, verse 4, it says, Now Adam and Eve knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, 
saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Uh, and then we know that as the story goes, Cain and Abel are out in the field and Abel brings a, a good uh, um, offer to the Lord and Cain brings a, a bad one. And what happens is that Cain is jealous of his brother. So what does he do? He murders him. So we go from eating a tree, eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to murder in one chapter. That is a dangerous spreading of, of sin. We go to chapter 5 and we see uh, Abraham's descendants. And when you read chapter 5, here's the one refrain. So we hear the refrain of chapter 1, it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. And then we see the refrain of chapter 5, verse 5, and he died. Verse 8, and he died. Verse 11, and he died. Verse 14, and he died. Verse 15, and he died. Verse 16, and he died. Verse 21, God took him. Slightly different. Verse 27, and he died. What you see here is, that's the refrain. God said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. What did Satan say? You will not surely die. And what we find in chapter 5, death. This is the nature of sin. This is what happens when you disobey the Lord, when you are exiled from his perfect place. Jump all the way to chapter 6. In chapter 6, in verse 1, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took uh, as wives any that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he has his flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Jump down to verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of, his, of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I mean, you just see the, this every intention was evil. And God regretted that he had made man because of their sinfulness, their wickedness. And what you see in, 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 the, in the flood is a reversal of creation. If creation was, it was good and God restored and made this perfect place, well, now you see the undoing of creation. And this flood entered and destroyed the earth. Jump all the way to chapter 11. In chapter 11, we, we read this. Verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What we see here is the epitome of rebellion against God. So God built a kingdom, says, I will be your king in this perfect place, in this perfect relationship, and you will live under my ruling blessing in perfect harmony. And now what do we see? We see the, the people of earth saying, God, we don't need you. God, we don't want you. We will build a tower ourselves, and we will make it back to glory. It's a defiance of God's word. 
this ultimate rebellion, I don't need God. I will build my own kingdom. We see that today, do we not? Those who reject the Lord try to do that themselves, whether that's in regards how they view themselves in terms of their own gender or decisions that they, that they make. This is the ultimate rebellion. So what you see here is if you're kind of tracing God's storyline, a lot of times they say Genesis 1 through 11 is the prologue of the Bible. 1 and 2 is the, is the creation. Chapter 3 is that the falling of sin. And 4 through 11 is the spread of sin. It's, this is what happens when people sin against the Lord. The kingdom of God has collapsed. And there is rebellion against the Lord. But it's interesting, if you go back and you see and kind of trace even Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Genesis chapter 11, what you see is glimpses of God's grace the entire time. Uh, Because God is always for his people, even in the midst of their sin. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and let's just see these, these pictures, these glimmers of grace. And ultimately we'll come to chapter 12 when God fully and clearly states his saving purposes. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What that is, that's the first gospel, the first glimmer of hope to the, to the fallen creation, uh, where, where the, the, the seed, the offspring of the woman, will be at war against Satan. And the offspring of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And the serpent is going to bruise his heel. That's a picture of the crucifixion. Uh, Satan is going to bruise Jesus Christ on the cross but Jesus Christ is going to defeat him with his resurrection from the dead and crush him underneath his feet. This is what Paul says in Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The, the New Testament scholars look back at that and say there, there's a picture of the gospel here. In, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, remember how Adam and Eve clothed themselves with loincloths. Verse 20 it says the man called his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Isn't that interesting? Eve just ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and brought death into the world. You would think that Eve was, would be the mother of death. No, she's not called the mother of death. She's called the mother of the living. God even here is restoring. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What is God doing? God's saying, you are naked and ashamed, uncovered and exposed in your sin, and I will take an animal. I will shed its blood, and I will take its skin and cover you so you're no longer ashamed. Do you sense the picture of the gospel there, right? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Even here at the beginning, you try to cover yourselves, you can't do it. So God says, I will cover you. I will shed the blood of this animal and clothe you. Even in, in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse, verse 15, Cain just 
slain Abel, and he was being judged. But notice what it says. It says, the Lord said to him, not so if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. So even though Cain was subject to God's judgment and punishment, God says he shall not be touched. If you touch him, I will judge you. God is showing his kindness even to Cain. And we see in the flood narrative, what do we see in, in Genesis 8, 6, 8? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God was being gracious to save Noah and his family. We see that even in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 16, uh, sorry, Genesis 6, 17 and 18, uh, God's word says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh, who shall bring forth two of every sort. And of course, God gives the rainbow as a sign in the sky of he's not going to judge the earth again. So even, even in, in when, when heart's man is continually evil, Every inclination is wicked. God is going to judge the earth, but he's going to save some. He's going to keep some for him himself. God is kind to do so. You know, this idea, just as a, as a brief moment, this idea of covenant is a huge thing in the Bible. Many would say that God had the first covenant with Adam when he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This, this calling to, to subdue the, the lands. Well, here we see the Noahic covenant. and God gives the sign of the rainbow. Right, that I'm not going to send a flood again on, on the earth. And then we see in, in, um, in chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant, where God uh, calls Abraham, which we'll get to in a second. He gives him the sign of circumcision. The Mosaic covenant, which God establishes by the Sabbath day, right, on Mount, Mount Sinai. And then obviously we all get to the, to the new covenant, when God's going to have baptizes with the, with the Holy Spirit, which even as we looked at today in the book of, of Acts. So when you're seeing chapter, chapter 3, things look really bad. But if you look hard from 3 to 11, there are glimpses of grace. There are glimpses of grace. And that gives the reader hope. And then we come to chapter 12. And chapter 12 is the great promise of the Bible. So if you uh, are one who takes notes in your scriptures or take notes in your journal, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is the great promise of the Bible, right? It kind of codifies all the glimpses that we saw in 1 through 11. So go there with me. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. God's word says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in, in, all, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So understand what's happening here. Just think about the, the idea of kingdom. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have this idea of the kingdom. There's a place. God is king. Perfect relationships. They're under God's rule and blessing. Chapter 3 through 11, God's people have no land. They have no place. And really, they have no king because they're not serving and, and honoring the king. And they're not under God's rule and blessing, they're under God's curse and judgment. 
So that's what happens for those who are outside the kingdom. And right there in chapter 12 is God calling his kingdom to himself. So who is um, uh, God is, is, is the king? Who is God's people? It's Abraham, Abram to Abraham and his descendants. And ultimately that's going to come to Christ, which we, we will see. And what's his ruling and blessing? Well, the ruling and blessing is that the seed of Abraham is going to bless all the families of, of the earth. So Genesis chapter 12 sets God's people on a new trajectory. So this unpacking of Genesis chapter 12 is the rest of the Bible. So Genesis chapter 13, all the way to Jesus Christ, is God's unpacking of how he's going to bring a blessing on a wicked and rebellious people. It's fascinating. So what is this promise we see? He's going to go to a country. He's going to give them a land. Initially, it's going to be the land of Canaan. He's going to make them a great nation. You're going to go from one man, Abram, to a multitude, millions upon millions of people. And his name will be great. And he will bless the entire earth. So jump with me into chapter 15. There's the initial calling. Now, we're not going to go in in this in detail, but remember Abraham's story. Uh, Abram and his wife, Sarah, Sarah was barren. She couldn't have a child. So what you see in Abraham's life, what you see in Isaac's life, what you see in Jacob's life is that this promise can only be done by the Lord. You see that in in, in Sarah's womb being dead. God's saying, I am the only one who can open it. The same thing with Isaac and Rebekah. Your womb is closed. God is the only one who can open it because the promise is based on um, the offspring. It's the promise of God sending an offspring. So in Genesis chapter 15, we, we see how Abram's struggling here. 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will, shall be very great. So verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So what, what, is, what is Abram doing here? He's thinking like Eve, right? He's thinking about the, like, the, like the serpent. He is doubting God, right? How can I have, be a great nation? How can I have offspring if I don't have a child? I'm childless, and my heir is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and the member of my household will be my heir. Sounds like him doubting and denying God's word. He's raising his fist at the Lord. Look what you have promised me, and you have not been faithful to me. And God in his kindness reminds him of his promise. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Just, do you hear it? Your very own son. Are you getting a glimpse of the one who is to come? And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, you shall, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and they counted to him as righteousness. 
So Abraham looked into that sky. He saw all the stars, right? And what did he say? He believed. He believed that God was going to be true to his word, even though he had no child. He had no son. And God says, you will have a son, but not only a son, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And beloved, we are that offspring. We are those who have believed in Christ. We'll see this in a moment in the New Testament. So before we we turn there, look at verse 17. Actually, verse 12, go here for context. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a gold age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Now what God asked Abram to do is, is to take animals and split them in two and kind of lay them aside. Then it says this, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So God is going to give them a land. How is he going to do it with a covenant? How is that covenant going to be, to be kept? It's going to be kept by God because God is the one that, 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 that pot, right, that um, smoking fire pot, that flaming torch was, was going back and forth saying if this covenant is not kept, if you break this covenant, someone will have to become like these animals, right, who are slain and, and cut in two. And what happened when, when Abram did not keep his end of the deal, did not obey the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who was slain, who was dead and buried, who rose from the grave to keep the covenant that Abram could not keep himself. Because the great promise is the promise of the Lord Jesus. In chapter 17, what you see is this, um, God changes his name. 17 verse 1, and Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said, and behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you, to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So the sign of the covenant, right, is directly connected to the promise because the seed of Abraham is going to turn into his offspring. It's going to turn into Isaac. It's going to turn into Jacob. It's going to turn ultimately into the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
This is why the genealogies in Luke and the genealogies in Matthew are so important. They're tracing the promise of God all the way to the Lord Jesus. So what you see here in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17, the story of the patriarch, is God unfolding this great and glorious plan of the kingdom of God. He's going to establish his kingdom through the offspring of Abraham. Now, let's look at how the, the New Testament speaks about this. We'll go to two places and then we'll, 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 we'll wrap up. Uh, so let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read in verse 10. It says, For all, this is Paul speaking, uh, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. What do we see in Abraham? He did what? He believed God. He had faith in God, in his promises. And what did God do? God counted him as righteous. Not because he did anything, but because he believed. Now we'll see, in, especially in, in, in James, we'll, we'll, he references back to Abraham's um, willingness to, to, to sacrifice his own son in Isaac as a, as, a, as a testimony that he was true to his faith. Go in verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see how this is all tied together? We're talking about Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17. And what do we see in Acts chapter 1 of the God sending the promise of the Father so that all the nations to the ends of the earth, Jew and Gentile, can come together under Christ. It's glorious. This has been his plan from the beginning. Verse 15 to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it and adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, rather to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. And so the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. But an intermediary implies more than one, but God is alone. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. And if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now just hold on here. Look, listen to what this text says. Now, before faith came, we were captive under the law, in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ, in order that we might be justified by faith, by belief. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And don't be offended by the idea of being a son of God. Ladies, this is a great promise to you. It doesn't say sons and daughters. It says sons because you have the full inheritance of the Father. You are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. You have the full rights of the Son, of the firstborn Son, because we are heirs with Christ. This is why the next verse says, For as many of you has been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, you have been clothed with Christ to cover up your shame, as God did to Adam and Eve in the garden. So now there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Do you see how all the scriptures are tied together? The great promise of God in the midst of darkness in Genesis chapter 11 when they wanted to build a tower to the heavens themselves and God scattered them, right? Well, we're going to pick this up in the book of Acts and, and God's going to, going to gather people from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and people are going to believe in Christ and they're going to be remade as one people, as God's offspring. Because if you are in Christ, you are Christ's offspring. And there are no longer many of us, we are one. We are one people, Jew and Gentile, to the ends of the earth. Beloved, I would encourage you maybe sometime this week to take the book of Romans, read chapter 4. Let me just end there and then we'll, we'll close in, in prayer. Romans chapter 4, I love this, how God speaks of Abraham. And I pray this is for you. I pray that whatever you have going on right now in your own life, that you would trust Jesus Christ. You know, I've been wrestling with many things in our church, in my own heart. And there are days when I'm tempted to doubt like the serpent. There are days when I'm tempted to deny like the serpent. But I pray, I pray that I have the faith of Abraham, that I continue to believe in the promise, the, the promise of the offspring of Abraham, the promise of Jesus Christ who lived and died and who rose again and who one day is going to gather all his people to himself. Look at verse 18. I pray this for you and for me today. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considers his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, 
or when you consider the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Just think about that for a moment. It says he did not consider his own body, which was dead, and the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I don't know what is going on in your life. I know what's going on in my life where I'm tempted to doubt God. I'm tempted to doubt his goodness, doubt his love, doubt his, his promises. I'm looking at the, the deadness of my own body. I'm looking at the deadness of the, the own situation. But this is what we need. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for us as well, for ours as well. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for justification. What a glorious promise, beloved. The promise is very clear. We have many trespasses. We have sinned much. Oh, beloved, we have been forgiven much as well. We have been forgiven much because Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay for our trespasses, was dead and buried, and did what? He was raised from the dead for our justification. So now in Christ, the promise of God says, forgiven, holy, blameless, and unashamed, we go before the Father. So when we breathe our last breath, when you breathe your last breath, when I breathe my last breath, for whatever reason that is, a car accident, cancer, or COVID, we know that God will be true to his word and he will welcome us into his kingdom because we are forgiven. He is our God and we are his people, his offspring, because we are with Christ. Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have saved us. I pray for my heart, for the heart of this body, that we would be a people who would not waver in unbelief, but that we would be fully convinced that you are able to do what you have promised in your word. You are able to save us because Jesus Christ paid for our trespasses on the cross and was raised for our justification. Oh God, we thank you for the calling of us into your kingdom. We pray, God, that you would help us live in light of your glorious grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.